uh, let me just tell you a little bit about who I am. Because whenever there's a new speaker, one of the things that I want to know when I see a new speaker is, who is this person, right? Well, I am the children's pastor here at Timberline. March 1st, I celebrated my third year anniversary. And uh, my, I've been married to my wife, Shauna, for 18 years. Uh, we have three boys, ages 16, 10, and 8. Uh, my 16-year-old is in the Rocky uh, Mountain High School baseball program, which is it's an animal all into itself. Um, but he's having a lot of fun doing that. Um, let's see. Uh, I am from Southern California. I grew up in Anaheim in Orange County, Disneyland area. Uh, lived there for 18 years, so uh, up until I graduated from high school. Uh, I always had aspirations of becoming a pro baseball player. And um, throughout high school, I was a catcher. And uh, my senior year, I was, yeah, there we go. I was uh, scouted by different colleges there in Southern California. Unfortunately, none of them panned out. So I walked on at Fullerton Community College and uh, lasted through two weeks of tryouts. And on the last day, they're calling off names. If your name is called, that means you've been cut. And uh, so it's Friday. Names are being called. And all of a a sudden, nothing. And I'm thinking, sweet. And then he calls out, Abbott, go over here. And that was the last that I ever played a baseball. Broke my heart. And then I'm like, okay, now what do I do? Uh, I decided to go into the Army. And I went into the Army for four years. I was a heavy equipment mechanic and a paratrooper. So I jumped out of airplanes and I fixed things that were dropped out of airplanes. uh, And uh, did that for four years. I discovered about 18 months into it that the Army life was not for me. Um, But I was able to travel around the world. I did three months in Kenya, which was really interesting, helping the Kenyan government build a landing strip. And I also spent three months in Honduras doing the same thing, helping the Honduran government build a landing strip there. I got out of the Army and still had no idea what to do in life. So I moved to Palm Desert, California, right next to Palm Springs. And uh, my dad and my grandmother, who had moved out there, and uh, one day I'm looking out out the uh, where my grandmother was staying in a country club, and I saw some guys cleaning the pool. And I thought, that looks so cool. I want to do that. So I go out and I talk to the guy, and I said, I want to do what you do, man. He's he's in his shorts and flip-flops, right? He's got his big hat on, and he's just, I mean, it's so cool. So he put me in contact with a guy named Dan Kenley. I called Dan, left a message, said, hey, I want to be a pool man. Dan contacted me back in about two weeks and said, I got a guy for you to that will teach you the ropes. And... Um, So I spent six months learning the pool business with this guy, rode around with him for free. He was an ex-minor league baseball player for the California Angels, so we hit it off. 
And uh, I ended up over a five-year period building up my pool business to where I ended up selling it because I wanted to go learn how to fly commercial jets. I mean, is this the greatest or what? Right? This is important. You want to know who I am, right? So, but all during my pool business years, I was volunteering in the children's ministry at Southwest Community Church, the largest church in India, in the Coachella Valley, about 8,000 people, and uh, had a real up-and-coming lead pastor, real dynamic guy, huge children's ministry, and I was a part of that. I sell my pool business. I tell the children's pastor, I say, um, and Dan Kenley, I say, guys, I sold my business. I'm going to go learn how to fly commercial jets. And they said, don't you dare do that. We think that God has a purpose in your life with ministry. We think that you do great with kids, great with parents. And uh, I want you to come work for us. So that was my start in ministry. That was in 1992. I started out part-time, and then that worked into full-time. I did my undergrad at a private school, private Christian school, called Biola University in Southern California. Great school. I grew a lot during my time here. And uh, then moved to Seattle, where I became an associate children's pastor. After that, moved out to Houston, Texas, Sugarland, Texas. Was a children's pastor out there for about five years. And it was during that time that I felt like, you know what, I want to grow a little bit more in my faith and knowledge in God. So I decided to go to seminary and move back to the Northwest, went to Portland and attended Multnomah Seminary. Wonderful time there. And then from Multnomah, uh, we moved out here. So that's my story. Now I'm here with you fine people. <laughs> Thanks. And I'll tell you what, man, I love Timberline Church. I lo- this is a great church, people. I tell our pastoral staff all the time, man, we got it good. We have a great church. Pastor Derry is a real authentic, transparent guy who I love working for. I can't say that for all the lead pastors I've worked for. But Derry's the real deal. And our pastoral team is authentic and really good. We get along great, love each other. The rest of the Timberline staff, we have so much fun together. I mean, we have a lot of fun. So we're all part of a really good, healthy church, and I'm glad to be a part of it. So uh, we are in week two of this series titled Confronting Jesus, Odd Encounters with Jesus from the Gospel. And that's That's a title that's very open-ended, isn't it? I mean, odd encounters with Jesus. Uh, It's not hard to find an odd encounter as you read the Gospels. Just a cursory glance at the Gospels will show us numerous odd encounters with Christ. I mean, he himself was odd, right? He was born of a virgin, placed in a manger, His traveling companions were these blue-collar workers. He kept company with known sinners. He had no home. He walked on water. He used spit to heal people. Nothing odd about that, right? Uh, His cousin was a crazy guy who wore, uh, wore camel hair and ate locusts and honey. I like this series 
because it highlights the way that Jesus interacted with people and how he did so in ways that nobody expected. So for those of us who weren't here last week, Pastor Brent opened the series by looking at a passage out of Matthew chapter 16. And in that passage, we learned about how the Pharisees demanded a sign from Jesus as a way of showing that he was God. And it was a fascinating interaction with Jesus where he responds to their demands by warning his followers to be on guard against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Basically, don't listen to these guys. Tonight, we're going to look at another interaction that Jesus had. And this interaction was with a Roman ruler named Pilate. Now, it's fitting that we take a look at this interaction, especially having recently celebrated Easter. And this interaction with Pilate begins the final act of kind of a building crescendo in the life of Jesus. And as a final act that we know ends in death. Now, the formalities of carrying out the death sentence is left solely to Pilate. Now, I'm sharing with you tonight uh, this particular odd encounter with Jesus because I have always personally um, been intrigued by this conversation between these two giants. Now, it's interesting to note that this interaction with Pilate is one of a handful of stories about the life of Christ that appears in all four of the Gospels. Now, that in itself should cause us to pause and consider the conversation that is taking place. Like, this must be really important. So, all four gospel accounts capture a different piece of this particular conversation. So, I'll put the passage up on the big screens. And what I did, I took the liberty of taking pieces of the story from the gospel accounts and sort of squishing them together to make one flowing conversation. Okay? So this is how it reads. So Pilate came out to them, out to them being the Jewish religious leaders, and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, We would not have handed him over to you. Well, Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Then the leading priests accused Jesus of many crimes. And Pilate asked him, aren't you going to say something? What about all these charges against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. Well, Pilate turned to the leading priests and to the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Well, Pilate, then he goes back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? I am not an earthly king. If I were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate retorted. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus, had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die. Because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And with those words, the conversation with Pilate is ended. Now, on the screens is an artist's rendition of that particular conversation. And uh, can you guys put that picture back up? There it is. Over the centuries, there have been many depictions of this particular interaction. The painting is known as Ecce Homo, or Ecce Homo. It's Latin for behold 
the man. This particular painting is by an Italian artist from uh, the late 1800s called, his name is Antonio Cesare. I know we've all seen this painting. And over the past few weeks, I have been entranced by this painting. I have looked at it so much because there is a lot going on in that particular scene. One is immediately drawn to the two main figures. You have Christ, condemned and naked from the waist up. A scarlet robe is falling off of him and covering him from the waist down. There's Pilate, who's dressed in in white, leaning over the balcony and obviously engaging people below. It is interesting, the colors, isn't it? Jesus, who is condemned, is in red. And Pilate wears the innocent color of white. There's a zealous crowd that's present. And that also includes people who are standing on the rooftops there. The other person in the scene that's really got my attention is this woman who's walking away from the scene. And though I don't know for certain, I am assuming that she is Pilate's wife. And she has a lot to say about this particular situation and about Jesus specifically. She appears uh, uh, in, for just a short moment in Scripture in Matthew chapter 27. Verse 19, it reads, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now, although she's not named in scripture, she is called Claudia Procula. In the apocryphal book Nicodemus. And she is said to have been the great the granddaughter of the emperor Augustus. And because of her lineage, she herself is a very powerful personality. But like Pilate, like most men before and most men since, Pilate didn't listen to the words of his wife. Got him into a bunch of trouble. And what about Pilate? What do we know about this guy? Well, we know that he was the governor of Judea. So what does that mean? If you're like me, I'm, I'm reading this passage. I'm going, well, what does that mean to be the governor? I know what a governor of a state might be like, but is that what he did? What it meant is that he worked directly for the emperor himself. And Pilate's rule was uh, one that was focused primarily on keeping the peace amongst the people and collecting taxes for the Roman government. So that was his job. The first century historian Josephus tells us that Pilate was a ruthless ruler, especially in his dealings with the Jewish population. On at least two separate occasions, he caused the Jews to revolt because of measures that he had implemented. On one particular occasion, it led to bloodshed and death 
amongst the Jews. And that particular incident was so bad that he was actually called back to Rome to give an account of what had transpired. As yet another way of endearing himself to the Jewish population, he was also known for bringing pagan symbols onto areas of the Jewish temple that were deemed holy. Needless to say, Pilate was not a very popular guy. Pilate, he came from a military background, but he also had the acumen of a politician. And as politicians do, they tend to minimize past mistakes in order to maximize future opportunities. So now this Jesus fellow is standing before him. The Jews are calling for his execution, and they are doing so because they know that only the government, Rome, can carry out executions. Now, Pilate, on the other hand, he sees that what's taking place is really a religious affair. And that it's not one that he really wants to get involved in. But he's in a bit of a quandary. He knows that Jesus is innocent, but he also knows that if he lets Jesus go, all hell's going to break loose. Pilate has a future ahead of him. And if it means condemning an innocent man to die so that he can maintain a sense of peace and also to ensure his future, then so be it. Now keep in mind that all of this is placed against the backdrop of the Passover festival. Now in the day of Jesus, there were about 30,000 people that called Jerusalem home. But during Passover, that number would swell to 150, 180,000 people, all with an axe to grind with the Roman government. So a lot of people are in Jerusalem. A lot of energy is in the air. The conversation between Jesus and Pilate actually takes place in a building called the Praetorium. And it's a sort of headquarters for Pilate and his Roman garrison. And as he was talking with Jesus, Pilate actually goes back and forth outside the Praetorium and back inside the Praetorium. He does this seven times. Outside to appeal to the crowd. Inside to try to get a clear story from Jesus. And this vacillating back and forth seems to mirror the vacillating that's taken place inside of him. Remember, a lot of, a lot of emotion is taking place outside. People are wanting blood. But inside, it's a bit more calm, quieter, as he comes face to face with God. So, that's the setting that's taken place leading up to the conversation between Jesus and Pilate. And I find it interesting that as Jesus is talking with the very man who could grant him immunity, the two directions that Jesus takes the conversation is in regards to silence and truth. Pilate didn't expect either one. So those are the two themes that I'm going to briefly touch on uh, for the rest of our time together. The first is Jesus' response of silence. Is everybody with me? Okay. 
Again, we read that the Jewish leaders are hurling accusations at Jesus. Then Pilate said to Jesus, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor wondered greatly. Why would Jesus not respond to these accusations? I mean, a person who's condemned to death would obviously have a lot to say to defend himself, right? Especially if that person is innocent. But instead, Jesus responds with a silence that perplexes even Pilate. Charles Spurgeon, the noted uh, theologian, he offered some insight into what Pilate may have been thinking. And he says this, He had seen in captured Jews the fierce courage of fanaticism, but there was no fanaticism in Christ. He had also seen in many prisoners the meanness which will do or say anything to escape from death. But he saw nothing of that from our Lord. He saw in him unusual gentleness and humility combined with majestic dignity. He beheld submission blended with innocence. Jesus simply answers with startling silence. I've been thinking about this theme, silence. And silence from God, as perplexing as it was to Pilate, is perplexing to me, and I'm sure it is to you as well. And if I'm honest with you tonight, I have a lot of issues to take up with God. Are you guys the same? I mean, you know, the classics. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does... Why is there suffering? And for me, a big one is why didn't God make me six foot four? That's a big one for me. But probably the biggest issue that I have with God is his silence. Or what I perceive as his silence directed toward me in big decisions in my life. If I'm like you, I long for the burning bush Uh, sky writing, you know, manna from heaven kind of stuff, something from God. And I know, I listen, I know that we have God's revelation through his son, through his written word. I get that. But sometimes in my humanness, I would like to have a little bit more. Now, there is also the silence of God during that 400 year period uh, between the Old and New Testament. There was no prophet of God during that time period until we see and hear from John the Baptist. After Jesus' death, there is the three-day period of silence between his death and his resurrection. I'm sure, I'm sure that to Pilate that the silence of Jesus was a little awkward that it was a little bit uncomfortable. And silence can be uncomfortable, can it? Of course, it depends on the circumstances. After having spent all day with my kids, I relish silence. Right? 
But when silence is given by my wife, uh uh-oh, that's a different kind of silence. The silent treatment, right? I know I'm in trouble. But it's a tactic that Jesus employed when the accusations came his way. And he did that because there was nothing that he could have said or done to better proclaim his innocence. And because of that, he simply said nothing. Instead, he let his words and his actions from the previous three years of ministry speak for him. Of course, the scriptures had already foretold this 700 years earlier. The prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open what? His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is what? Silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And as we go on to read the crucifixion account, we see that Jesus continued this practice of silence. While hanging on the cross, Jesus only spoke seven times during the six hours that he hung there. Perhaps there's something for all of us to learn from the silence of Jesus. So I thought that this might be an appropriate time for us to just take a minute or two to just ponder this idea of silence. And maybe God will speak something to you, maybe something from what we've already shared tonight, or maybe it's something totally unrelated. But if you're like me, man, I got three kids, I'm buying a house, I'm selling my house, I'm going to be coaching baseball, you know, I'm driving kids everywhere. Silence doesn't come very often in my life. So I just thought, if for no no one else for me, can we just take a few minutes in silence? I'm serious. Let's just take a minute and just ponder and reflect on this idea of silence. Tomorrow morning, I'm flying to uh, 
to Orange County. I haven't been. Uh, my mom still lives in the same house I grew up in. And I haven't been back to Anaheim in about seven years. My mom comes out to us. It's cheaper that way than five of us flying out there. But two weeks ago, uh, a friend of mine that I've known since first grade, he uh, unexpectedly passed away. So I'm going uh, tomorrow to his memorial service. So I've been reflecting and I was just thinking about that up here, you know, like uh, just the heaviness of it. You know, so I'm really looking forward to the two hour flight where I hopefully I won't have to talk to anybody and just kind of think about my friend and put some thoughts together as I share at his service. Anyway, the other thing to touch on briefly is this idea of truth. Truth, according to Webster's, is up here on the screen of the real facts about something. The things that are true, a verified or indisputable fact, proposition, or principle, or as a state or character of being true. In the interaction between Pilate and Jesus, Jesus, instead of pleading for his life, as I would, and I suspect that most of us would, he instead talks to Pilate about kingdoms and truth. Now, the word truth carries with it many different connotations, doesn't it? I mean, we exhort our children to be truth tellers. It's a virtue that we all aspire to, is to tell the truth. And yet, telling the truth isn't always an easy thing to do, and at times can be downright scary. In the book Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Dumbledore, the headmaster at Hogwarts, he says that the truth is a beautiful and terrible thing and should therefore be treated with great caution. That's true, isn't it? But truth, with the definition of it being things that are true, isn't such a popular topic in today's culture, is it? Truth in itself is supposed to ride above any subjective view. And it's supposed to be empirical in its approach. Noted scholar John MacArthur, he says that truth is not subjective. It is not a consensual cultural construct. And it is not an invalid, outdated, irrelevant concept. Truth is the self-expression of God. That expression comes in Jesus Christ. But today's culture is much more fluid in its belief in truth, isn't it? At least regarding absolute truth. I mean, the prevailing thought for today is that, hey man, if something's true for you, it may not be true for me. Good for you. Own your truth and I'll own my truth. And this mindset is especially true when it comes to religion. Truth takes on a whole different meaning when you start talking religion, doesn't it? I mean, when we as Christians proclaim to know the truth, whoa, right? Whoa. We are often derided because of what we believe. You know, I grew up in a home where my dad was an atheist. 
And he struggled greatly with the notion of a God. My mom was a very passive Christian. And what this made for was twice a year, we would go to, my brother and I and my mom would go to church, Christmas and Easter. And there were probably a couple of other other times throughout the year that we would attend. My dad, however, didn't want any part of Christianity. I can still hear him making fun of my mom for believing. Church was for weak people. People who can't think for themselves. Pastors only want your money. And besides, how can anyone know the way to God if there is a God? What he struggled with was the truth that this book holds. Now, to be fair to my dad, who passed away about eight years ago, he came to embrace the truth of Jesus about 15 years ago. I mean, talk about a praise God. Now, that wasn't the last time that I would encounter hostility toward the truth that we Christians adhere to. When my family and I lived in Portland, I came across numerous people who would totally reject the notion that Christianity holds truth or that Jesus is the truth. Now, Portland is kind of a microcosm of where I believe we as a country are going in, in, uh, in that we're becoming more uh, increasingly secular in what we believe. And if, there, if a person does have a belief, it tends to be more pluralistic in its approach. Kind of smorgasbord-like. I'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that. And what it makes is very a hodgepodge of beliefs that can be very confusing. In Portland, I met a young guy who was 25 years old. We met at the Bipartisan Cafe, which was hardly bipartisan, believe me. But I knew that if we met there, I knew that this guy was against Christianity, and I just wanted to meet with him to hear his story. And he proceeded to tell me that uh, he grew up uh, going to church. He told me that his parents were kind of passive in their belief and that the pastor was a very controlling type A kind of guy. And this led to my friend creating his own version of God. He, he told me that he knew everything there was to know about God. Like, whoa, you're 25? Wow. He said, yeah, I've read the Bible, and I've come to, to the conclusion that God is a schizophrenic nutcase. His words. He said, God is nice one minute, but he's mean and angry the next. Jesus was hardly the truth to this guy. So by the time we had met, he had rejected any notion of the God in the Bible as being true. And instead, he came to the conclusion that Christianity was just one of many paths available for people to take. I'm sure that we all know people like that, right? Well, the book of John is the only one of the four Gospels that captures the question that Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? I thought that was interesting. And I think John in particular wanted to capture that because the Gospel of John is arguably the most Christologically minded of the four Gospels, meaning John wanted to be sure to point out both Jesus' divinity 
and his authority. So he is careful to capture this question from Pilate, what is truth? But then the conversation ends right there. John doesn't even write down if Jesus responded or not. I mean, it's sort of an interesting cliffhanger, right? Although John doesn't capture Jesus' answer in that particular exchange, he did make note of an answer that Jesus had provided in an earlier passage. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. The only way to the Father is through me. See, Jesus said that during the discussion he was having with his followers prior to his death. Jesus said that uh, to try to get them to understand where he was going, what was going to happen in the very near future. Jesus told them, there are many rooms in my father's house. I am going there to prepare a room for you. When, you, my, when your room is prepared, I will come and get you and take you there. Well, one of his followers, Thomas, was confused with all of this. He wasn't getting it. And he said, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus responds by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father is through me. So although truth may be hard to come by these days, Pilate's question, what is truth? And Jesus' proclamation that he is truth is as relevant for us today as it was the day that Pilate asked. Truth can always be found in the person of Jesus Christ. And I am personally thankful for that. Because Jesus doesn't change. Because of that, truth doesn't change. And that's important for all of us to remember in today's culture. Especially with the lack of certainty that is prevalent in our society. Noted author and speaker Randy Alcorn says, We can't change the truth. But the truth can change us. And for those of us who call Jesus Lord, we can all testify to the truth that Jesus has and is continuing to change us. I'll end with a great quote uh, that uh, Pastor Bob Seal shared with the pastoral team a couple of weeks ago. It's a quote by a guy named Russ Ramsey. And he wrote the book, Behold the King of Glory. And and he's talking about this continuous change that Jesus brings about. He says, Jesus remains involved in the provocative work of overturning idolatrous hearts, calling them back to dignity and sanctity for which they were intended. I love that. 